This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. In 2010, I, I found myself in the Pesh Valley, and it was—it it really just got me hooked. Um, it, it felt very different from other places in Afghanistan that I'd been, and that was just sort of the original root of my interest. Was this place seems so different? Um, it's so beautiful. There are these forests, and yet it's also—it it seems like it's settled into this stalemate. U.S. forces and the Taliban—they've—they've um, they've been here forever. They're duking it out with just unbelievable amounts of ordnance. I mean, I'd never seen so much artillery fired in probably all of the other embeds I've ever done. Why did we stay for as long as we did? A lot of what you see is not so much a, a big decision being made in Washington or Kabul um, that you know decides the course of oh we're going to be we're going to be in this valley pursuing this mission until it's done. You, you see um, different units rotating through and different tribes of the U.S. military taking responsibility for it in succession, uh, and each one of them kind of using it for their own purposes, trying to accomplish different things there. Eventually being pulled out, and then some other unit being left left behind, left holding the bag. ISIS has continued to draw the interest of the U.S. military because as local as its flavor is in Kunar, it is this branch of a global caliphate that is of, of deep interest to, to our counterterrorism community. It's a threat to the Taliban, too, because it's sort of naturally ideologically opposed to them, and also it draws away a lot of their fighters and people. Uh, and of course, it's a threat to the Afghan government. You've actually seen the government, the Taliban, and the U.S. kind of all on the same side against ISIS. Wes Morgan is a military affairs journalist who most recently covered the Pentagon for two and a half years for Politico. He previously worked as a freelance journalist in Washington, Iraq, and Afghanistan, contributing stories to the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Atlantic, and other publications. He joins us today to talk about his new book, The Hardest Place, The American Military Adrift in Afghanistan's Pesh Valley. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Wes, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is terrific to have you on the show. 
thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I want to start by congratulating you on your book, The Hardest Place, The American Military Adrift in Afghanistan's Pesh Valley. I must tell you and my listeners that I found it extraordinarily well-written, extraordinarily well-researched, absolutely fascinating, a page-turner from that perspective, but also very sobering and, I have to say, frustrating. And I hope we'll be able to highlight those last two feelings, sobering and frustrating, for our listeners as we as we talk about the book. But start with congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's, um, uh, thanks very much for reading it, and I, I'm glad that it resonated. So my first question is, why did you write the book, and why did you focus it on one location in Afghanistan? Sure. So about a decade ago, um, I was spending time as a freelance journalist kind of roving around Afghanistan south and east during President Obama's surges. Um, and I would just, I would go from battalion to battalion visiting U.S. and British infantry units that were essentially in the toughest fighting that I could find, um, just because that was, you know, I was covering infantry operations as an embedded reporter, um, and I just wanted to see the places that units were having a hard time. Um, and so I would go to everywhere from, you know, the Brits in Sangin and Helmand to U.S. troops in the Argandab Valley in Kandahar. Um, and on the second one of these trips that I made in 2010, I, I found myself in the Pesh Valley. Um, and it was, it really just got me hooked. Um, it, it felt very different from other places in Afghanistan that I'd been. And that was just sort of the original root of my interest was this place seems so different. Um, it's so beautiful. There are these forests. Um, and yet it's also, it, it seems like it's settled into this stalemate. U.S. forces and the Taliban, um, they've, they've been here forever. Uh, they're duking it out with just unbelievable amounts of ordnance. I mean, I'd never seen so much artillery fired in probably all of the other embeds I've ever done, you know, cumulatively. Um, and yet, uh, it wasn't obvious how things had gotten this way. You know, you'd visit these little fire bases along the Pesh Valley floor, um, and the company commander there wouldn't be able to tell you, you know, when or why that outpost had been established. Um, so the original impetus for kind of looking into the Pesh, uh, which I started to do actually while I was still a, a college student for a senior thesis, um, was just to sort of figure out why these outposts had gotten there, what, what the backstory was on each of them. Uh, and then the more I looked into it, um, the more it became clear that there were a lot of the bigger threads of the war, not all of them by any means, but a lot of them uh, appeared in microcosm in the Pesh. Um, in particular, kind of the, the this overarching tension between um, the counterinsurgency and nation building mission on the one hand uh, and the counterterrorism mission on the other hand, um, which was always very present in a very visible way in the Pesh and its surroundings. Um, in a way that it wasn't in a place like Sangin or, or the Argandab in, in the Taliban heartland where there were not Al-Qaeda operatives uh, you know, running around. So when you first went there, you were quite young, right? I was. I would have been um, 22, I think. Yeah. So how does a 22-year-old get into an embed? Well, at the height of these wars, um, the, the U.S. military in particular and our allies to, to a lesser extent um, were very generous with the media with their embedding program. Um, and it was a great way for freelancers to kind of get started. Um, so I was spending my summers during college um, uh, through a, sort of a weird opportunity I'd had um, after my freshman year, starting with Iraq, um, just going and um, taking advantage of this program. I mean, there was kind of low overhead. Um, you just had to sort of show the units that you knew what you were doing and weren't a total idiot. Um, and, and they would be pretty welcoming of you uh, in, in covering their operations. So, Wes, can you give us a sense of the general location of the Pesh Valley 
you know, where are we talking about, say, particularly in relation to Kabul and uh, Pakistan? Yeah, sure. So we're looking at a place that's about 100 miles northeast of Kabul. Um, it, it, it's a, a river that a river valley that empties from Nuristan province, which is very, very high up in the mountains with kind of glacial lakes and all this stuff, uh, empties from Nuristan down into Kunar province, um, which is a, a border province that abuts Pakistan. Um, the provincial capital or provincial seat of Kunar is a small city called Asadabad. Um, and Asadabad sits at the junction of the Pesh River with the larger Kunar River. Um, and so the, the Pesh itself, just as it joins the Kunar, it is also joined by smaller tributaries, um, some of them very infamous, like the Korangal Valley, the Waigal Valley, um, places where really tragic uh, episodes of the war have played out. Um, th that's basically the, the location of it. Um, and one of the things that's unusual about it is uh, Kunar and Nuristan, they're home to one of the last real forest complexes in Afghanistan. And that's something that's affected the war in a lot of ways, um, is these big, thick conifer forests full of pines and cedars and firs um, that have both made physically operating up there very difficult and dangerous, because you can imagine it's, it's difficult to find places to land helicopters and it presents obstacles for aerial surveillance. Um, and also in, in other kind of more subtle ways, um, as there's actually a timber trade up there that has played an outsized mm. role in, in the U.S. Uh, US involvement. Yeah, I wanted to get a sense for you f of the geography and the terrain. What is, you know, what does that look like? What's it feel like when you're there from a terrain perspective? So it's very jagged. It's, you know, anywhere in the Afghan East, you'll see great elevation. Uh, things are very high up. Um, but in Kunar and Nuristan, you see... Um, just everything is very sharp, um, sharp angles, sharp slopes um, in, compared, in comparison to kind of the more rolling plateaus that you might see in some other parts of the east, far, farther south along the border. Um, there, is, uh, a ver there are very thin valley floors that are cultivated and this very lush green from the corn that people grow there. Um, and that's where a lot of the towns are. But then there are also towns that are really just clinging to the mountainside in this very precarious looking way as you go farther up the slopes and you'll see as you, as you go up, you kind of pass through dry, arid parts of the mountainside. And then you get up to these, these huge forests with their enormous trees um, that have played such a big role in the war. And what's the altitude of the peaks? Uh, they rise up to 10, 11, 12,000 feet. Um, the Pesh Valley floor is at like 3000 feet. So not actually that high up. I mean, you don't sort of feel out of breath when you first show up in the Pesh the way you might in Paktika or some other parts of the Afghan East. Um, but then, yeah, they just they, they rise very steeply and sharply up from there um, to these much taller mountains that, you know, you'll see snow on even in the even in the spring and summer. So, Wes, when did f U.S. troops first show up in the Pesh Valley and what took them there? In 2002, very early on in the war. Um, and, and this was something that was not obvious to me when I started researching and writing. Um, was I didn't know when the first base, you know, at Asadabad had been established. I didn't know when the first U.S. troops had had ventured into the valley because a lot of that had been done by special operations forces and the CIA um, by you know units that were operating outside what embedded reporters could see uh, who were covering the, the conventional infantry war. Um, but it turns out as I kind of rewound this tape and talked to more and more people and had them introduce me to the people before them and, and so on, um, that this all comes back to the hunt for bin Laden um, and uh, the U.S. military and the intelligence community trying to figure out where bin Laden had gone after his uh, December 2001 escape from U.S. bombing at Tora Bora. Um, and we know in retrospect that he did, in fact, go to Kunar. 
um, the province where 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 the Pesh, uh, where much of the Pesh is located. Um, but this wasn't um, this wasn't known at the time. I mean, the, the military and the intelligence community suspected this, and they and they sort of followed him up there, um, and and they came closer than probably they really knew at, at a couple of moments. Um, not to actually getting him, but to you know being a couple months behind him, you know, to finding somebody who could have told them where he'd gone. Um, uh, but yeah, at the time, it was one of a number of places that they thought he might have gone. Um, and so these little teams, reconnaissance teams of special operators and, and intelligence operatives um, were just sort of spreading out to the four winds, setting up little fire bases um, from which they could drive out and pick up trucks and ATVs and talk to people and follow up on tips, essentially looking for Arabs. And why did we stay for as long as we did? And in asking that question, I have in the back of my mind what you heard from Lieutenant Colonel Joe Ryan, who was the battalion commander in the region, telling you in 2002, essentially that he had no idea why he and his men were there. Sure. Yeah. So, so Colonel Ryan was the, um, he was the battalion commander in the 101st Airborne in 2010 when I visited during the surge. He's actually back in Afghanistan now um, as a as a one-star general. He's been selected for promotion to two-star general, I think on his eighth Afghanistan deployment. And he's a guy who recurs throughout the book um, because he's one of these few people who just kind of by the luck of the draw kept seeing the war in the patch at different stages. Um, so he had actually been there in 2003 during a very large um, Ranger Joint Special Operations Command operation up into the patch. And then just happened to return there as a battalion commander in 2010. Um, and so he was able to tell me a little bit about, um, you know, hint at the answer to that question uh, of, you know, how did the mission evolve? Uh, because he was one of the few people who had seen an earlier point in the evolution. But a, a lot of what you see is not so much a, a big decision being made in Washington or Kabul um, that, you know, decides the course of, oh, we're going to be we're going to be in this valley pursuing this mission until it's done. Um, you see um, different units rotating through and different tribes of the U.S. military taking responsibility for it in succession, uh, and each one of them kind of using it for their own purposes, trying to accomplish different things there, eventually being pulled out and then some other unit being left left behind, left holding the bag um, to figure out what to do with it next. Um, so you see these little incremental changes along the way during every unit rotation, whether that's you know, six month tours for these Green Berets and Marines who were there early on um, to, you know, 15 and 16 month tours for some of the infantry units that were there at the height of things. Um, things would evolve during the course of these deployments. Then a new unit would come in and that new unit would just inherit what they inherited. And they wouldn't have much of an idea of uh, how that compared to what things had looked like a year earlier or two years earlier let alone five years earlier. So Wes, what was the fighting like in the Pesh Valley? What was it like to be a soldier there? Yeah, it, it changed uh, over the course of the war, but some of the things that were constant um, were just the very great um, uh, disadvantages uh, and problems posed by the terrain. Um, you know, it's, it's, you're going to be shot at from across a stream, from another uh, opposite ridgeline, and you're not going to be able to get up there. Um, so there's a lot of long distance firefights um, and a lot, a lot, a lot of the use of artillery and airstrikes and mortars um, to, to respond to enemy attacks. Um, so it was really, it was a war of firepower. It was not so much a war of, you know, kind of crawling along on the valley floors, you know, waiting to be struck by an IED, um, which is, you know, a way, of, a, way, a way I think a lot of veterans would characterize their experiences in other parts of Afghanistan, particularly the South. 
Um, but yeah, it was a war that I think for a lot of guys was very satisfying and thrilling in comparison to other places that they wound up fighting or had fought earlier in Iraq and Afghanistan, just because of the amount of firepower involved. Um, and the fact that you really were shooting back at your enemy um, uh, all the time. Yeah, one of the things that struck me when I read the book was the routine nature of that, right? Um, it, it, it happened all the time. And, you know, you were you came to expect, you know, at some point during the day to be fired upon. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, you know, I opened the book with a scene um, in 2010 at the little fire base at the mouth of the Korangal Valley where it joins the Pesh was called Combat Outpost Michigan. Um, and Michigan was an interesting place because at the time it was the most, uh, the military would call it the most kinetic, meaning the most frequently attacked outpost in all of Eastern Afghanistan. Uh, it just was sucking down these attacks, you know, three or four times a day, every day. Um, they could last five minutes, they could last 45 minutes, um, and they would involve everything from, you know, volleys of RPGs from the mountains to, you know, recoilless rifles, which I sort of, I sort of had associated with like Korea and Vietnam and didn't really know were in use in the war until, you know, they started hitting this outpost that I was visiting, um, to mortars, to, you know, an old Soviet automatic grenade launcher. Um, and then U.S. troops would fire back with the stuff they had on hand, you know, their crew served weapons in the outpost and the mortars. And then there would just be this cascade of artillery and then satellite guided bombs that would, that would start coming in this very routine fashion. Um, to the extent that to the troops at Combat Outpost Michigan, I mean, the way they behaved in it, it almost felt like they were talking about weather, like, oh, this attack is light, this attack's heavy, do you want to go outside in that one, um, as though it were rain or hail or something. Um, it was very striking to me that by that point in the war, um, the routine had evolved to such a degree that you kind of wondered who was really getting hurt on either side. I mean, it wasn't safe. I mean, there were guys wounded on the outpost just during my brief stay. Um, they had lost a mechanic killed in an attack um, not that long before, but they really were very heavily fortified and battened down compared to what I would come to learn that outpost had looked like a few years earlier. Um, and by the same token, the enemy up in the hills, they've been at this a long time. They know exactly how long, how many minutes and how many seconds it's going to be before the mortar shells start falling and then the howitzer shells and then the JDAM you know, bombs. Uh, so you really got the sense that who was being hurt most at this point in the war was just the people who lived there, who happened to live near the U.S. outposts uh, and would get caught in the crossfire. And you were there for some of these firefights, correct? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So so, so what was it like for you um, as a journalist? I mean, it was fascinating. It was uh, it was very different from I've become very accustomed to just sort of going out on patrols, um, uh, walking around, driving around and the real threat being IEDs. Uh, and so that was something I was pretty used to at that point. Um, but yeah, I mean, just seeing the, the sheer amount of firepower that was being expended, it was a very different kind of, of fighting. Um, and it was interesting. I mean, I was, um, I, I was young, but so were the soldiers. I mean, I was at, at like 22, I was older than a lot of the soldiers I would be, you know, chatting with in the, in the chow halls. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Wes Morgan. So, Wes, what did you do during these firefights? Did you go out? Did you stay inside? How did that work? I would usually attach myself to some leader, often a, a senior non-commissioned officer, like a platoon sergeant or first sergeant, and just follow him around um, to see what he did. Because um, they this, this is a guy who would kind of be in a position of looking out for his troops, seeing what's going on all over the place, um, and who was very competent and knew what he was doing. 
um, and would not would not be sort of phased by my presence or afraid to tell me like you know go over there if if uh, if, if he needed me to. And then, can you tell us? Can you kind of walk us through Wes what happened there on July thirteenth, two thousand eight? Yeah. So July thirteenth, two thousand eight um, is. One of the blackest days of the story of the U.S. war in Kunar and Nuristan. Um, it's the date of the Battle of Want or uh, Wanat, as American troops kind of learned to mispronounce it based on the, the maps that they had. Um, Want is a little ve- village in the Weigal Valley um, on, on the on the valley floor. It's the seat of the district. Um, and uh, over the course of 2007 and early 2008, U.S. troops had actually been paring back their presence in the Weigall Valley. They had closed a couple of very, very remote outposts way up in the mountains um, that commanders felt like they were playing with fire just being there. Um, there had been a couple of really close calls at some of these outposts. Um, there was an outpost called the Ranch House uh, up in the mountains near the town of Iran's that uh, in a huge enemy assault uh, Insurgents had gotten inside the wire, and it was just kind of a miracle that that nobody died on the on the U.S. side. Um, so commanders wanted out of that, um, but they also didn't want to just abandon the Weigal Valley altogether uh, and look like they were ceding the place to the Taliban. So, kind of the compromise solution that um, the battalion commander at the time in the valley, Colonel Bill Ostland, hit on was: we're going to pull we're going to pull farther down the valley and build a new outpost. Uh, in a place that we can reach more easily by road rather than just by helicopter um, at the district center want. Um, but just as U.S. within days of U.S. forces arriving in want and starting to construct their outposts, just digging holes and stringing concertina wire and so on, um, they get slammed in a similar massed attack to the one that had happened at the ranch house a few months earlier. Um, and it winds up being very bloody. Nine paratroopers are killed, um, eight of them at this one little position, a little observation post just above the perimeter of the main outpost. Um, and it prompts a lot of questions for the U.S. military in Afghanistan about what were these guys doing there? It prompts recriminations, you know, multiple investigations. Um, there are careers that are put on hold or in some cases effectively uh, ended uh, over this battle. Um but what the investigations never really got into was, you know, why U.S. troops were in the Weigel Valley in the first place, why this unit had been in this position uh, where it had to make this very difficult choice about how to withdraw. The investigations all focused on the minutia of the firefight and the days and weeks leading up to the firefight um, and, and what decisions commanders had made during that period um, without kind of going back to, you know, the unit previous or the unit before that, or the role the intelligence community had in kind of steering the military up into this valley. Um, so that was the lens that I sort of tried to approach the battle of want from was how did this happen? Yeah. One of the things that I found really fascinating was what happened to the civilians. You, you've kind of mentioned that already, but how their views of the United States changed over the course of our presence there. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, I mean, that this was one of the most interesting things in the book, and I wasn't sure that I would be able to do it when I started, but I, I was very lucky with the help of some really good interpreters um, who, who knew the Valley, who knew people from the Valley, um, to be able to talk to a lot of um, Pesh residents and Weigal and Korengal residents um, about their experience of the U.S. military over the years. Um, and you know, one thing that I found was that there was a lot of optimism early on. I mean, when Americans showed up, um, people really were very hopeful about what they would bring. Um, and they really gave a lot of leeway for mistakes. Um, you know, U.S. soldiers might, might shoot the wrong person by accident, detain the wrong person. Uh, and initially, there was a lot of benefit of the doubt given. 
Um, but over time, as more units rotated in and inevitably made the same mistakes over and over and over again, um, it just it accumulated. And so by the time you get to 2009, 2010, a new unit arriving in the valley um, is really burdened by uh, not only the prospect of it, the mistakes that it may make in the course of this you know, very difficult technical kind of fighting that they're up against, um, but also the mistakes of all the units that have come before, because they'll be living in an outpost next to a village where people remember the little girl who was killed by a short mortar round, you know, two years earlier. And they remember the two policemen who were killed um, in a, you know, by paratroopers who were anxious when a vehicle was coming toward them uh, a year before that. And it just goes back and back and back. Um, often much farther than the, the units themselves can appreciate. So Wes, I want to get you to talk about two things that you've already mentioned, but maybe get you to go into a little bit more detail. The first is the dynamic between counterterrorism and counterinsurgency. And the second is this theme that you keep on coming back to, that there's no learning that happens from unit to unit, right? And a repetition of mistakes, and I'm really interested in your sense of why was that the case? Why didn't we do a better job of learning from deployment to deployment? So if you get you to talk about those two things. Sure. Um, yeah. So I think, as I mentioned earlier, what you see in the PESH is that the war all begins with this narrow counterterrorism mission um, that the Joint Special Operations Command and the intelligence agencies are pursuing. They're trying to figure out where top terrorist leaders responsible for 9-11, uh, particularly bin Laden and Zawakri where they have gone, trying to pick up their trail. Um, but then as they fail to pick up that trail, the mission snowballs into something larger. Um, as you know, successive units come in, um, are not really aware of that narrower counterterrorism mission that brought their predecessors there, um, but find themselves just fighting local insurgents. But in the Pesh and Kunar, always local insurgents who have a little bit of a, a, an outside flavor. Um, there are there are Al Qaeda figures, in particular uh, an Egyptian uh, an Egyptian national named Abu Ikhlas, um, who are persistent figures in the war. They're essentially Al Qaeda battlefield advisors to the local insurgents, and, and their presence, because Al Qaeda figures were so few and far between on the Afghan side of the border, where the military was responsible for fighting, um, Al Qaeda figures like Abu Ikhlas really become like bright flashing lights for the military counterterrorism apparatus. Um, so the whole time that these infantry units are out there fighting this war of counterinsurgency, you also have um, the intelligence agencies and the special operations guys maintaining a persistent interest in the place, periodically coming in and, and doing night raids and so on, trying to trying to grab or kill these these high level figures that they're interested in. And often you'll see these counterterrorism and counterinsurgency missions uh, really in conflict with one another. Um, you'll see you know, the effects of a JSOC night raid where SEALs or Rangers come in and kill a bunch of people in the night, even if they get their guy, um, they're killing a lot of people in a local community and the infantry platoon that lives there has to deal with the mess in the morning. Um, and that's, a you know, a common story throughout the war in Afghanistan. Um, but it's it was really, you know, you see it a lot in the patch. But then in, in other places, you see the counterinsurgency and counterterrorism missions um, meshing with each other in some surprising ways. Um, like, I didn't understand when I started that... Uh, in 2006, when the 10th Mountain Division really took this big, ambitious plunge into Kunar and Nuristan and built a lot of the outposts, especially the most remote outposts in the deepest valleys, um, they were kind of being encouraged um, by the intelligence community, which was saying, look, I mean, you guys are going to be doing counterinsurgency somewhere in eastern Afghanistan. Um, you might as well do it in these two provinces uh, because we have ambitions of um, 
you know, we have gaps in our intelligence collection across the border from these provinces. And the more outposts you build, um, the more access to sources we'll have. Uh, and there was this hope that counterinsurgency would improve counterterrorism uh, and, and would help would help pick up Bin Laden's trail again. And it didn't really work out that way um, for a variety of reasons. Um, but that was that really is part of the genesis of these of this outpost strategy in, in Kunar and Nuristan is there was this kind of hidden role of the intelligence agencies encouraging the military to go up there. Uh, and then again, later, you see once the military has kind of doubled down on the counterinsurgency and nation building um, in 2009 or so, you see um, the Joint Special Operations Command uh, try to uh, try to iron out these kinks, try to iron out the ways that it's really making the counterinsurgency mission more difficult with its raids. Um, and instead, uh, bend its organization to collaborate more to kind of hit the types of targets that the that the infantry want hit, um, rather than just you know somebody they've never heard of way up in a side valley. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Go ahead, Wes. Yeah, thanks, Michael. I, I think I'm going to just address your next question, which is about institutional learning. Um, yeah. Which really was one of the weak points that you see. And again, I think this is something that's common throughout Afghanistan. The Pesh really illustrates it. Um, but it illustrates it vividly because U.S. forces were there for so long. Um, you know, in other parts of the country, U.S. forces started spreading out into their little outposts in 2008, 2009, 2010. Um Whereas up in Kunar and Nuristan, they'd really been doing that since 2002, 2003 in, in some pretty remote places. But you see, um, as units rotate through, um, sometimes they deliberately discard the lessons of their predecessors. Um, you see, for instance, you know, a Green Beret team coming in um, that just is dissatisfied with what the outgoing Green Beret team has been up to and pursues a completely opposite approach. And then, you know, when a unit of Marines relieves the second team of Green Berets, they only know what the second team has been doing. They don't know what the first team was up to. Um, and they just continue what the second team was doing. Um, and then you also see it just inadvertently. I mean, you see these units, um, they, they pass through, uh, they have a two-week transition period um, with, the, with the outgoing unit. There's kind of, there's time for some very broad strokes lessons and some very technical lessons, um, but not for much kind of deep dive into... Uh, what were things like at the beginning of your deployment? Um, what was the last relief in place like? What do you learn about, you know, from, from the guys before that? Um, and one of the things that was most interesting to me was the ways that um, the military tried to cope with this, almost like this just intractable problem. I mean, nobody was going to stop doing the war of rotations. That was just the way the military worked. But so there were these various people who tried to step in and fill the gap. Um, and one of them was an army unit of contractors and soldiers called the Asymmetric Warfare Group that had some very experienced older operators, uh, you know, former Delta Force guys and stuff like that, um, who really took it upon themselves to try to make these transitions go better at the tactical keeping soldiers alive level. Um, uh, and they would and, and, and they would really sort of try to be the institutional knowledge that the army was not providing these units with. Um, by the same token, I mean, these same guys, because they kept going back over and over and over again, 
they also were incredible historical resources. And this is true of the interpreters also, the Afghan and Afghan-American um, translators who work very closely with the units and often, uh, you know, often for three or four or five or even more years, um, living at the same base, seeing units come and go. Now, the interpreters may not be kind of listened to by the units themselves as a, as a resource in the way the AWG advisors are, uh, but they sure see and absorb information and have stuff to say about the units and commanders that they worked with. Um, there were often kind of very subtle points that the units and commanders themselves either weren't aware of or, or didn't want to acknowledge. So Wes, another thing I'd love to get you to share with our listeners is the impact that ISIS in Afghanistan has had on the dynamic between the Taliban on the one hand and Afghan forces and the U.S. military on the other. I think this will surprise a lot of people. It's a strange story. It's um, This is kind of what the last chapter and epilogue of the book are about. You know, the broad arc of the story is U.S. forces go up there chasing al-Qaeda. They get sucked into this bigger nation-building mission. Then they go back to chasing al-Qaeda, but from the air in a military drone war. Uh, in 2016, they kind of, they get their guy. They, they kill this figure, Farouk al-Qahtani, who was uh, one of the top al-Qaeda figures they were chasing. But essentially, no sooner have they done that um, than the military manhunting machine just has to move on to ISIS. Because um, in that year, 2016 in particular, um, you start seeing um, little local insurgent groups um, in, in these side valleys, especially the Korangal and places around the Korangal, um, basically lower the white flag of the Taliban that they had embraced some years earlier and raise the black flag of ISIS. Um, in some cases, for ideological reasons, um, Kunar is home to a, 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 one of the largest Salafi populations in Afghanistan. Um, and they have a, an, an ideology that has not always meshed well with that of the Taliban uh, and for whom... Um, ISIS has, in some cases, seemed like kind of a more natural religious and ideological fit, uh, but then also often for very much more prosaic reasons. I mean, you may have a, you know, a small time commander who's the number two in his district um, in the Taliban hierarchy, and he doesn't see any opportunity for promotion, um, but he knows that if he, if he switches sides, ISIS will make him number one in the district. Um, you know, I've got a, there's a, there's a ranger officer who describes um you know, doing drone targeting against a, against an old commander in one of these valleys who, as he describes, it was literally flying at different times, both the Taliban and ISIS flags. So, you know, people for whom this was a very pragmatic decision. Um, now, uh, ISIS has continued to draw the interest of the U.S. military because as local as its flavor is in Kunar, it is this branch of a global affiliate, uh, you know, an, an affiliate of a, a global caliphate um, that is of, of deep interest to, to our counterterrorism community. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's a threat to the Taliban too, um, because it's sort of naturally ideologically opposed to them. And also it draws away a lot of their fighters and people. Uh, and of course it's a threat to the Afghan government. Uh, so up in Kunar in recent years, you've actually seen, um, the government, the Taliban and the U S kind of all on the same side against ISIS. Um, even well before the Doha talks began, um, there were truces between the Taliban and the Afghan government in Kunar. Um, Afghan government troops using Taliban fighters as auxiliaries and scouts and bringing wounded ones into U.S. aid stations for treatment. Um, and then you even see in the in the six months or so before the Doha um, agreement, um, at the same time that the Joint Special Operations Command is just hammering the Taliban with airstrikes everywhere else in the country, um, it's actually helping the Taliban with airstrikes in a subtle way against ISIS in some of these valleys surrounding the Korangal. It's not actually, it's not like JSOC is talking to the Taliban, but what they're doing is they're using some of their same old intelligence collection tools to figure out what the Taliban needs. Um, 
you know, things like, well, which machine gun nest up on this hill, will it benefit the Taliban if we hit it, uh, you know, before they launch their, you know, their offensive against ISIS in the morning. Um, basically just trying to tip the scales a little bit in this fight between two enemies um, so that the, the lesser enemy prevails. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. We've got about two minutes left, Wes, and I want to ask you one more question. I'm sure you've read A Bright Shining Lie, which is a book about Vietnam. And as you know, the narrow story told in the book is also right the story of the entire war. And with that in mind, I'm wondering, in your view, how you think about the parallels between the U.S. experience in the Pesh and our experiences in Afghanistan overall. There definitely are some. Some of them are very, um, very obvious and uh, almost just begging to be pointed out. I mean, there were Green Beret teams up there that would um, make their fire bases deliberately look like stuff in the John Wayne movie, The Green Berets from, from 1968. Um, so you, you saw units kind of mimicking the aesthetics of Vietnam. Um, you saw big air assault missions where there's a one-star general who he would distribute these first cavalry division calling cards to, to his troops on the air assault missions, you know, almost like Colonel Kilgore in Apocalypse Now. Um, but one of the, one of the deeper ones is this, uh, kind of this loss of institutional knowledge or the failure to accumulate institutional knowledge. Um, there's a, there's a famous Rand Corporation study from the early 1970s. Um, in which a, a Green Beret captain describes um, the war as uh, as though it was being fought on recording tapes that keep being erased. Uh, and that's something that's extremely familiar to to veterans of the patch. Um, and then I think another key way is um, the way that our efforts were hobbled by uh, our local partner. Um, uh, the way that, you know, the Afghan people didn't trust the Afghan government that we were supporting. Um, and it, when that's the case, um, when they're when they're not interested in in kind of um, our, the, the the government whose writ we're trying to expand and they don't trust it, um, that really makes uh, makes counterinsurgency a, a very difficult nut to crack. Yeah. I guess the other right is the fight to a stalemate, right, in the passion then in the country overall. Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, you see you see units um, just go at it, expending tremendous amounts of firepower. Um, uh, and, and in the Pesh anyway, never really, um, you know, achieving a, a true advantage. And you see in the same way that, you know, there's the adage about Vietnam that we that we won the battles and lost the war. I mean, that's echoed by Colonel Osland describing the Battle of Want uh, in 2008, where U.S. troops lost nine guys. They probably killed a lot more. Uh, the enemy never got inside the wire. Um, and yet it led to the very wholesale U.S. retreat from the valley that that Osland had been trying to avoid. Uh, and, and he describes it uh, in very stark terms, reminiscent of Vietnam, as a, a tactical victory and a strategic defeat. Wes, thank you very much for joining us. It's been great to have you on the show. The author is Wes Morgan. The book is The Hardest Place, The American Military Adrift in Afghanistan's Pesh Valley. Thanks so much, Michael. That was journalist Wes Morgan. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. 
Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.